glad to see you this morning. I, I think about our children and their excitement and the excitement of those who receive these boxes. And I've told people before, and I think it was on a Sunday night or something, that, or maybe a Wednesday night, that if you can't get excited about seeing kids come to Jesus and fall in love with him, I honestly can't do anything for you. I really can't. I, I can't. I can't produce that. I, if you can't get excited about that, and I believe we are, but if you can't, I, there's nothing I can do for you. I, you can keep coming, and you keep sitting every Sunday morning, but I, I can't do anything for you. That's just something that, man, if your spirit, if it does not resonate with seeing others come to know Jesus Christ, I'll stop short of calling you, uh, somebody who needs to check your spirit real closely, but you need to check your spirit real closely, if you understand what I mean. If you cannot get excited about that, um, and excited about seeing kids, and even if they act a little crazy sometimes, so that's fine. Well, I'd love to have a church full of crazy kids. That's great. So what an exciting time, and I know these boxes will go to children who desperately need them, both the contents physically and what spiritually will be carried to them. You see there on the video and other videos that we've shown you, they, they are very intentional at Samaritan's Purse about not just giving them a box full of toys, but about telling them about the greatest gift they can receive in Jesus Christ. And I, So we, we have full confidence that when we send these, it's not just a nice thing, pat a kid on the head and on the back and say, God bless you. It is a direct uh, communication of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's exciting uh, to be a part of that. Why don't you join me in prayer as we prepare our hearts to hear God's word. Lord Jesus, we are excited this morning about what you're doing. We pray that you would stir our hearts, that you would awaken us afresh and anew this morning. Lord, that you would revive us to be the people that you have called us to be, excited about who you are, excited about worshiping you from full hearts, excited, Lord, about participating with you in ministry that actually makes a real difference in the lives of people and children. Pray, Lord, you'd make us excited this morning to receive your word and leave God changed and different from the way we came. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was growing up, I remember several pieces of advice that I got. And I think I've shared these with you before, but they are the ones that stand out to me. And maybe you, as a, as a person, you remember advice that you got from maybe your parents or grandparents or just funny things they said all the time. And I remember my dad when I was a kid and growing up and going to school and having to get up early to catch the bus or to drive to school or whatever it was, that we had to get up at about 6 o'clock every morning to, be, to have enough time to get ready because you know how it goes. You actually, the alarm goes off at 6, but you, you, know, you, you sort of don't get up exactly at 6 o'clock. So dad the night before would try to prepare us for that. He always started the night before. He didn't try to, to do it just that, that next morning. But he would always say when we were stalling, my sister and I, we would stall. Of course, none of us in here have ever done that. But we would stall to go to bed, get really creative, and which is funny now to see it play out of my own children. But we would get really creative in how we would stall. And Dad would always say, now 6 o'clock comes really early in the morning. But Dad, it comes the same time every day. No earlier than it was yesterday. It'll be no later. But 6 o'clock comes early. Well, what's he trying to say? Dad's just simply trying to say, you better get in bed because it's going to be morning before you know it, and I'm going to be knocking on your door. What he would do is he'd just do this. So he got up. <laughs> Dad, stop. You're not up yet. That's the way he would do it. Six o'clock comes real early, he'd always say. And then I remember times when, when I would get a little bit out of line, according to my dad, 
And he would say to me, we can do this the easy way or the hard way. I hated getting to that point because I, I didn't want to do it the hard way, but I, I, you know, I, I knew the easy way w- was not me getting my way either. The easy way was you, just, you do what Dad says. The hard way was you get a whooping and then you do what Dad says. Maybe you've been there, you know. You do it the easy way or the hard way. And then I remember my grandfather, and Papa was the perfect grandfather. You have to understand that in order to be the perfect grandfather, you have to, you have, to have lots of good stories. Uh, a few weird sayings. Uh, you have to have correct change all the time, wherever you go. It's just the way that it is, you know. And he carried a little coin, you know, pouch thing, you know, he pinched together. Yeah, correct change everywhere you go. And you have to wear your hat just sort of crooked most of the time. Just be a perfect grandfather. But anyway, that was him. And, and he had some weird sayings. And one of those was when we would want something. There were four of us grandchildren at the time growing up. And, and when we would want something and he would offer something different. And we would not want what he's offered. He would say, it's not what you want. It's what you get that makes your belly stick out. <laughs> it took me years to figure out what in the world is he saying. It's not what you want. It's what you get that makes your belly stick out. And I, you know, it finally hit me. Just be content with what you've given and quit complaining about everything because eventually your belly's going to stick out because you're going to get full on what you get, not necessarily what you want. Papa's pretty smart. But I, I, I've learned, at least to some degree, to live by those axioms, by those words to live by. And this morning, I want to share with you from the book of Ecclesiastes some more words to live by that the teacher will give us. So turn with me to Ecclesiastes. In the Old Testament, if you don't know the Bible very well, this is your chance. So look it up, go to the table of contents if you need to. It goes Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is an interesting and unique and a little bit weird book of the Bible. Weird in the sense that it seems to take an approach that life is meaningless and pointless and why do anything except just enjoy everything you can because sooner or later you're going to die and there's nothing you can do about it. That's sort of the, the, the thing that you could pick up from that. But, but we know ultimately that the book of Ecclesiastes points to the fact that yes, death is real. And yes, you only get one life, but God is intricately involved, and as a result, we should fear and trust Him, and that's what gives life its meaning. Now, we have, we've settled on the fact, and we've been in this series now for several weeks, we've settled on the fact that there is relatively little that has great meaning in life apart from what is connected to God, and one of the things that the teacher in this book settles on that has great meaning is wisdom. Now, he, he recognizes fully, he's honest about it, that wisdom has its limitations. There are things that we saw last week, that we, or two weeks ago, that wisdom can and cannot do. But it still has great value. Of all the things you can accumulate, the teacher holds up wisdom as quite possibly the most valuable thing that you can possess. And chapter 10 is where we'll be this morning, beginning in verse 2. And chapter 10 is about how wisdom or foolishness charts a course for the rest of our lives. So I want you to look with me, chapter 10, verse 2. We're going to read through the end of the chapter and then come back and and break this down a little bit. A wise man's heart goes to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks along the road, his heart lacks sense, and he shows everyone he is a fool. If the ruler's anger rises against you, don't leave your place, for calmness puts great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, an error proceeding from the presence of a ruler, The fool is appointed to great heights, but the rich remain in lowly positions. 
I've seen slaves on horses, but princes walking on the ground like slaves. The one who digs a pit may fall into it, and the one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who quarries stones may be hurt by them. The one who splits trees may be endangered by them. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. However, the advantage of wisdom is that it brings success. If the snake bites before it is charmed, then there is no advantage for the charmer. The words from the mouth of a wise man are gracious, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of of the words in his mouth is folly, but the end of his speaking is evil madness. Yet the fool multiplies his words. No one knows what will happen, and who can tell anyone what will happen after him? The struggles of, of fools weary them, for they don't know how to go to the city. Woe to you, land! When your king is a household servant and your princes feast in the morning, blessed are you, land, when your king is a son of nobles and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Because of laziness, the roof caves in. and Because of negligent hands, the house leaks. A feast is prepared for laughter and wine makes life happy and money is the answer for everything. Do not curse the king even in your thoughts. And do not curse a rich person even in your bedroom for... A bird of the sky may carry the message, and a winged creature may report the matter. That seems a little bit disjointed, a little unconnected, a little random. If you read that, you may be thinking, now what in the world does all that mean? But I believe we get very clear instructions at the outset, beginning in in verse 2, for some words that we can live by. So I want to give you just the central idea, the central theme for what chapter 10 really unfolds to be about. And it begins in verse 2. A wise man's heart goes to the right, a fool's heart to the left. Let me give you this, and then we'll, we'll unpack it. The content of your heart determines the course of your life. The content of your heart determines the course of your life. You see here, a wise man's heart goes or is directed, some of your versions may say, and a fool's heart is directed. It goes a certain way. It's the content of your heart that determines the outcomes in your life. Oh, let me define that word heart. So if you got your Bible open, look at verse 2. And on the back of your bulletin, you'll see kind of how you can follow along just a little bit. But you might want to in some way mark this down if you don't have it written anywhere else in your Bible or on a, on a set of notes. Underline or circle the word heart, and, and I want you to just write down a couple of things that refer to what we're talking about. Now, you know that inside of you right now, you have a heart that is beating and keeps you alive. But that's not obviously the kind of heart that we're talking about. The, one of the things that the Bible mentions when we, when we see the word heart that it talks about is your intellect. So if you're, if you're writing a definition, I'm just going to give you a few words that you can associate with the word heart. One of those is intellect, your mind, what you think about, what you give your attention to, what you focus on what you consider doing or giving yourself to. Now, there are lots of things on your mind each and every day. There are things on your mind right now, some of which have to do with a sermon, some of which don't. There are lots of things, as you well know, your mind is always processing things. Your intellect is always at work, but the Bible associates that with your heart, that that your mind, what you think about, ultimately comes from your heart, your, your inner person, who you really are. You've got things about home or school or work or sports or whatever it may be. And I wonder, what is it that you think about most? I mean, if you, if you think about what you think about, 
for just a second. What is on your mind most of the time? There are probably one or two, maybe up to five or six things that are continually on your mind. For some, it's your home life. For others, it's work. For some, it may be school or a sport that you play or like or whatever. But whatever is, is there, whatever you think about most, likely takes up a good portion of your heart. You are committed to the things that you think about most. Your heart involves your intellect. It also involves your, your will. Uh, th- that includes your wishes, your desires, the things you want and the things you decide to do and to act upon. People often make decisions or give an advice to what? Follow your heart. Well, you'll know what to do if you follow your heart. We say that, not in a, even in a spiritual sense, but we say that knowing that from our heart emanates our decisions and what we will act upon. The things that we do begin in our heart, on the inside of us. So you've got your intellect, you've got your will, you've also got your emotions, your feelings that come from your heart. Your heart may be full of joy or love or happiness, or it may be full of hatred or fear or discouragement or despair or sorrow or jealousy, whatever, positive or negative, there are things on both sides. And the Bible says that all of these things come from the heart. It's very important. So you've got your intellect, you've got your will, you've got your emotions, you also have your spiritual life or your morality, whatever you want to call that, which essentially is your conscience. If you think about things that you want to do or don't want to do or whatever, there is probably, and we all have this, something you would say inside of me that just said, I shouldn't do that. Or something inside of me told me that was the right thing to do. Well, we would associate that both in a non-religious sense and from the Bible with our heart. Our conscience has its root in our heart, uh, your, your, your moral and spiritual life, your conscience, represents who you really are. Now, this is contrasted. Your inward person is contrasted in the Bible, of course, with the outer person. What does God say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks where? On the heart. There's a contrast. God looks on the inside. Man looks on the outside. The outside can be a disguise for what's really going on on the inside. I had a conversation right before the service started about how we as Christians... We always ask one another, how are you doing? What do we say? I'm good. How are you? With a big old smile. And I would guess that at least 50 to 60% of the time, that is an absolute lie. Just a lie. And we're a bunch of liars. Every one of us. We just go around, liar, 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 liar. Liar. All the time, don't we? We mask it on the outside, what's really going on on the inside. But God sees it, God knows. So you have your intellect, what you think about. You have your will, what you want, what you're going to do. You have your feelings, uh, your emotions. You have your your spiritual life, your moral life, your conscience, and so on. That all is connected to and emanates from your heart. So when we talk about the word heart from the Bible, it's who you really are on the inside. It's your inner person. All those things come together to make who you are. You cannot separate yourself from what you think, from what you feel from what you do, and from your spiritual life. You are those things. So be clear. Your heart is a big, big deal. What's there really does matter. So when I say the content of your heart, understand we're talking about what's really on the inside of you. Now, there are some 
some things that can be there in your heart, some possible things that could, could be there. Now, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to a couple of scriptures. We're going to learn the, the Bible a little bit this morning. Maybe you don't know, or maybe you do, and it's just been a while. But we're going to flip to a couple of scriptures not far from Ecclesiastes. It shouldn't be too hard to find. So hold your place, Ecclesiastes chapter 10, and turn to the left to Psalms chapter 1. The book of Psalms is a little bit thick, so you may have to turn just a few pages. So put your mark, Ecclesiastes 10, and turn with me to Psalm chapter 1. There are two general categories that your heart could contain. One of those, as you'll see on your bulletin, is foolishness. The other is wisdom. So you'll see there the arrows pointing on content. Uh, at the top, write foolishness. At the bottom, write wisdom. There are two general categories, and I want to show you these to you, general categories that you could contain in your heart. You can have foolishness. You can have wisdom. Look at Psalm chapter 1. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. You get the idea. Here's the wise person. It says they don't follow the path of sinners, take the advice of the wicked, or join a group of mockers. But instead, what do they do? They delight in what? The Lord's instruction, which is what? The Bible itself. They delight. The wise person will have in his heart lots and lots of Scripture. Now, I, I, I don't say advice or just good little sayings. I say Scripture because the truly and godly wise person will have in his heart, in her heart, lots and lots of the Scripture. You will take delight. Then it says in verse 4, the wicked, the fools, are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Every time the field is, is, uh, is harvested behind our house, we get all the chaff. It just blows all over the place. And I just hope that day the wind's blowing the other way. You, you understand what I'm talking about. If you, if you know anything about farming whatsoever, then you know what this is insinuating. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners, fools, will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked or the way of the fool leads to ruin. So you've got in the heart of the wise, you've got lots of Scripture. In the heart of the fools, you've got the advice of the wicked, the path of the sinners, the group of the mockers, and so on and so forth. Now turn with me to, ch to chapter 1 of Proverbs. Proverbs is just the next book over to the right. I just want to show you over a few verses here the idea of what it means to have a foolish heart, what it means to have a wise heart. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. In some versions will say wisdom, the beginning of wisdom. And then what does it say? Fools despise what? Wisdom and instruction. You see, again, the heart of the wise person fears and, and respects and worships God, but the fool despises, casts it off, pays no attention to wisdom and instruction. If you know a person who is unteachable, they're a fool. Clearly from the Bible. You can tell them, I said that, that's fine, but ultimately blame it on God, right? because he said it first. But if someone is unteachable, unwilling to receive instruction, hard-headed, will not listen whatsoever. Nobody in here is like that. 
Some of you are nodding because you know somebody. Some of you are nodding because eh, that's just me, you know. But those people are foolish. He said, don't call me a fool. I didn't. God did. Blame him. <clears throat> All right, now let's look at Proverbs chapter 3. Just turn a little bit more. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. I'm going to give you the picture of the wise person. Trust in the Lord with all your what? Heart. And do not rely on your own understanding. Think about him or consider him or acknowledge him in all your ways. And he, God, will guide you on the right path. The wise person then what? Trust in the Lord with all of his heart. The wise person does not rely or depend upon what he thinks he knows, but instead he thinks about God, he considers God in every situation in life, and as a result, his life is changed. Look at Proverbs chapter 8. Uh, look at verse 12. I, wisdom, share a home with shrewdness or discernment and have knowledge and discretion. That's in the heart of the wise person. To fear the Lord, here's more in the heart, is to hate what? Evil. This is wisdom talking. I hate arrogant pride, evil conduct, and perverse speech. I possess good advice and competence. I have understanding and strength. Now, those things should be, at this point, things you're thinking, oh, I kind of like that in my life. Uh, instead of being a, a clueless fool, I think I would rather have shrewdness and knowledge and discretion. I really don't want to be viewed as being arrogant or evil or perverse. I'd rather possess good advice and competence. You should be getting the idea by now that the person who has a wise heart is the one you want to be like. And then look back with me in Ecclesiastes chapter 10. What is it that is in the heart of either the fool or the wise person? Chapter, chapter 10, verse 2 says, The wise man's heart goes to the right, the fool's goes to the left. Now, this is not in any way, though I've heard it said before, this is not a political statement, not in any way. So you can't use it for that. Don't yank it out of context and use it for those things. But what it's saying is during this time, you have to understand that those who were left-handed were viewed as a little different. Raise your hand if you're left-handed. Sort of. How many we got? Just three of us? Four? Five? You're not willing to admit it, are you? Oh. Only five of us in here are willing to admit that we have left-handedness. I write left-handed. I eat left-handed and brush my teeth and shave and all the essentials to keep yourself alive. I do those things left-handed. I'm really weird because I played ball right-handed. Uh, that's kind of strange, you know, so I'm, I'm really mixed up. Some of you are, are left-handed, which, of course, means that you're the only ones, as they say, in your right mind. The rest of you are crazy. But left-handedness was considered almost a curse back during this time. I came across an article uh, this, uh, this week that talks about being left-handed and so on and so forth. Uh, it, it talked about the desks uh, at school that are so frustrating because back, you know, when they had the old, old-timey old desk, and maybe some schools still do, they're all set up for right-handed people. So if you're a lefty, you're kind of sitting kind of weird, and you got to wrap your arm around, and there's not enough room for everything. And then I saw where there was a, <laughs> this article quoted 
uh, a policeman who was fired because he would not carry his gun on the right side because he's left-handed. He's afraid he'd shoot himself if he put it on the right side because he had no coordination with his right hand. And he was fired because he wouldn't carry it on the right side. And then it mentioned, this was, this was great, that in Latin, the, the, the word for left-handedness means sinister. And in Old English, it means worthless. Isn't that great? You realize that in the Bible, it's left-handedness is mentioned almost 30 times, and not a single time is it in a positive light at all. <laughs> he's saying here that those who turn to the left, he's saying, this is associated with disfavor and and sneakiness, and being unlucky, and, and valuing what is actually less valuable. Those who turn to the right, the right way to go, he says, they're the ones that are on the path of strength, protection, associated with what is more valuable. So the content of your heart can either be foolishness or wisdom. And those are the general categories that the Bible sets for us. Now, if you think about how those things got there, if you're evaluating your heart this morning, and I hope that you are. It's implied throughout this whole sermon that that's what you should be doing. Evaluating what really is in your heart. Because if it's true that the content of your heart determines the course of your life, then you've got to figure out what's there and how did it get there. There are a few ways that things, of course, enter your heart. First of all, is through birth. You were born a sinner. You cannot claim otherwise. Because as soon as you could and were conscious enough to know, you sinned. You say, well, I was a good kid, absolutely, and a sinner at the same time. We all were. You are born with a sinful nature, inclined with a foolish heart to take the wrong path. You have things in your heart that are foolish because you are human. No one can escape those things. But also through your experiences, things can enter your heart. Some as a child had experiences that Put things in your heart that maybe you can't even explain. Hurt and pain or joy and happiness. Either way, there are things in your heart from your experience as a child or as a teenager, at home, at school, at work, good or bad experiences, right or wrong things that happened to you or that you did that have put things now in your heart. Of course, you receive things into your heart also through your senses, through what you see and look at, through what you hear, through what you touch, what you, what you feel. Things are received into our heart through a variety of methods. And so if we're understanding that we have either foolishness or wisdom in our hearts, that that content of our hearts came there through some specific means, and that content then determines the course of our life, I think we need to recognize that it absolutely is true that it does. In fact, and you can look back and say this, the content of my heart has determined course of my life. It determines it, meaning, and I, I believe this is attributed mainly to Aristotle, who said, you are what you repeatedly do. You're not, you're not anybody but what you repeatedly do. Now, what you repeatedly do, if you think about it, comes from your thoughts. It comes from your impulses, your conscience, your decisions, your values, your emotions. Where are all those things? In your heart. And so if you are what you repeatedly do, and what you repeatedly do comes from your heart, you better check your heart real good, because if you are continuing down a path of repeatedly doing something. That's who you are, and it comes from your heart. You want to change who you are, you want to change the path of your life, where do you have to start? In your heart. So the course of your life is determined by the content of your heart. Everything about you comes from your heart. Everything in your life is affected, and it's determined by what's in your heart. 
you realize that how you handle every situation you encounter comes from what's in your heart. It does. Everything you say, by and large, comes from your heart. Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the way you approach school or work or relationships, how healthy your marriage is, how you go about parenting your children, how you face each new day, how you deal with aging and death is directly related to what's in your heart. Think about it. Everything in life is connected to what's in your heart. So there are two paths to take. There's one foolish, there's one wise, and then there are two general outcomes that we see here in life, that we see from the teacher. There is sorrow and there is blessing. Sorrow, the general category for things not going the way that we would want them to go if we're walking with God. And blessing is what God gives us. Don't put your pencils down just yet. If you look at Ecclesiastes, you'll see how this unfolds. He begins with verse 2 that says, The content of your heart determines the course of your life. And then he goes to verse 3 and he says, Even when the fool walks on the road, his heart lacks sense. And he shows everyone he's a fool. If there is foolishness in your heart, you will display it. It will be obvious at some point to everyone. You will soon give yourself away. And then he says in verse 4, Don't leave your place if the ruler's anger rises against you, for calmness or composure puts great offenses to rest. You realize that wisdom in your heart, it brings composure, it brings calmness, it brings knowledge of how to handle people and situations. You ever known somebody who is so incredibly calm no matter what happens? Well, that comes from their heart. There is wisdom in their heart. Now, they may have to kind of muster up a little bit of that calmness on the outside, but ultimately, it resides in their heart. The wise person knows how to keep his cool when everybody else loses theirs. The fool, though, on the other hand, lacks self-control and just does whatever is impulsive in a situation. Then he goes to verses 5 and 6, and he talks about the fact that foolishness puts people puts the wrong people, rather, in the wrong places. He says, I've seen people who are, who are appointed to great heights that are foolish, while the rich, those who really should be in those positions, rich in wisdom and so on, remain in lowly positions. Wisdom is needed. If you are the leader of any kind of, of organization or business, or, or you've, you manage people in any way, you need wisdom to know who to put where. And I mean that in a practical, you say, well, my business isn't Christian in any way, I don't care. You need wisdom to know who to put where. Because it's easy, even if you don't mean to, to operate as if, well, it doesn't really matter, or you put the wrong people in the wrong positions, and you know what happens then. That's called chaos and losing your job. One followed by the other. Not real good. You need wisdom to know how to, to lead and to delegate. Then he says in verses 8 and 9, The one who digs a pit may fall into it, the one who breaks through a wall may be bitten by a snake. The one who quarries stones may be hurt by them, and the one who splits trees may be endangered by them. This is the person who, who maybe takes what they do a little bit seriously, but, but not seriously enough. They're a little bit lackadaisical when it comes to, to their regard for caution and so on and so forth, and it can bring extreme consequences. And then verse 10, I love this. I always think about church signs when I come across little statements like this. You ever drive by churches and read their signs? Things about church signs can, can drive you up the wall, of course, you know, but, but, uh, but, but this would be interesting, uh, like the ultimate and obvious. If the axe is dull and one does not sharpen its edge, then one must exert more strength. Well, we ought to put that on the church sign. You know, just to, rhetorical. If, if we think about it, if you think about it, the foolish person does not make the most or keep the tools that God has given him sharp. 
The wise person is the one who is diligent, who does things in a smart and orderly and wise fashion. And whatever God has given him, he keeps the tools sharp so that he doesn't have to exert more energy or bang his head against the wall trying to accomplish what he's doing. Verse 11, a little bit confusing verse, but if a snake bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage for the charmer. This is the person who's just nonchalant in what they're doing. I've got this. I know exactly what's going on. Not recognizing the danger in front of them. Maybe they've been successful in the past, and all of a sudden, boom, they get snapped with a snake bite, wondering what in the world just happened. It's the fool who is nonchalant about life. And it's also the fool in verses 12 through 14 whose words destroy him. This is the person who has destructive words, who just blurts out whatever's on his mind, not considering who might be hurt by it. This is the person who says, hey, I need to tell you a few things, and goes on and on and on, and tells you all that is on their mind, and then they say, now, I, I feel better. How about you? And they've just attacked you for half an hour with their words. And you say, I don't feel any better at all, but I guess I'm glad you do. This is the person who has hurtful and destructive words. It also says their words are really kind of unreasonable. They don't make any sense. You ever run into someone? who thinks they're an expert on everything. But then you actually get a real expert who knows what they're talking about and listen to that person try to keep up. <laughs> it's evident. They don't know what they're talking about. Their food, their talk, it says, is, is folly in the beginning, and in the end, it's madness. They're also uncontrolled. The fool, in verse 14, multiplies words. They're full of words, but they don't really know anything. They're also pretty, pretty boastful. No one knows what will happen. It says nobody really knows the future. What will happen tomorrow, but the fool, he will talk like he does. But what's interesting about that is ultimately he destroys himself, his reputation, his character, his credibility, and so on. And then in verse 15, despite all of his arrogant talk, he doesn't even know how to get to the city. Back during this time, the roads were pretty clearly marked. It would tell you with an arrow, go that way if you want to get to this particular location. The fool, though, is so caught up in expressing himself and proving himself and making a show of himself that he, he has no idea how to do practical things in everyday living. Can't even get to the city, which is clearly marked. And then we see in verses 16 and, 16 and 17 the spilling over of foolishness, that when it reaches the pinnacle of leadership, that it can be a great blessing to the land, it can be a great curse to the land, it spills over. Then we see how foolishness plays itself out in laziness because the roof caves in, negligence because the house leaks. You realize that things in your life don't typically happen overnight. It's a slow leak. Foolishness sort of lulls you to sleep. And maybe you've had problems before in your home, and you say, where did that come from? And you get somebody out there, and they say, now, did you notice this and this and this and this and this? No, I guess I really didn't. But over time, that leaks happen. And then verse 19, the foolish person just lives only for now, thinking that money is the answer to everything. Another great church sign, by the way. If we just take the first out of context, put this on there. Money is the answer for everything. I just build the stereotype about churches. Y'all may not find that funny. I do. <clears throat> anyway, do not curse. Finally, verse 20, the wise person knows this. Don't curse the king even in your thoughts. Don't curse a rich person, even in your bedroom, where, where you think no one can hear you. For what? A little birdie will tell them what you say. The wise person is the one who holds his tongue, even when no one is really listening. The wise person is the one who will say to the person that needs to hear it directly what needs to be said. 
but will not run around behind the back of, in this case, the king or the rich person, even in their thoughts, even when they think they're alone. They will not foolishly think that those words will not get back to the person that they're talking about. So it's easy to see here how the teacher unfolds this and how the direction of your life is charted. The course of your life is charted by the contents of your heart. So what do you do now? We have to recognize that our problems in life are not from the outside. The issues, main issues we have in life are from our hearts. We, inside, are the problem. Now that's, that's not fun for a lot of us to hear because it takes away all the scapegoats and all the, all the things and all the p- people and issues you can blame. But the issues that we really face start in our hearts. So our problems begin in our hearts. And it's the heart, the root of the problem, where God must begin His work in you. You can pray all day long, God, take this away, and God, I don't want to deal with this, and Lord, heal this and take care of this. But if you ignore your heart, your life will be no different. Because wherever you go, there you are. Your life will be no different unless God works in your heart. And each of us, because we are born with a sinful, cold, dead heart to God, we each need a new heart, a new one. And only God can give it to you. He says in the Old Testament it's a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. So maybe today you'd say, you know what, my heart is cold the things of God. I am cold to who God is. And today, Lord, I'd pray, God, give me a new heart. The Bible says in Romans that you must believe in your heart. That Jesus is the Son of God. That God raised Him from the dead to give us new life. That's where it all begins. Jesus came to die, to rise again, and to take up residence in the heart of of each believer, and each one of us must believe in Him. I can't believe for you. I'd love to. (laughs) I would love on behalf of Elm Grove Baptist Church to take my faith before the throne of God and say, Lord, this has got to be enough for everybody, but it's not. I cannot believe for you. You, as an individual, must believe in Jesus on your own. And it must involve your heart, your inner person, including your mind and your will and your emotions and your desires. He must be Lord of your entire being, all of it. So maybe you'd begin this morning, Lord, give me a new heart. And then this week, I want to challenge you with a couple of things, and I'll close. Some of you like to maybe jot things down. Maybe you're a note taker, maybe you're a journal keeper, or whatever it may be. This week, I would would encourage, just for seven days, just this week only, try it, to journal or to write down, take an inventory of what's in your heart. What's there? What are you thinking? What are you feeling? What are you wanting to do? Just, just take an inventory. You might be surprised. Wow, I didn't, I, I didn't realize <laughs> that that kind of dominates my heart. And then, uh, sort of connected to that, determine how it got there. What was it that came into you that caused those things to take up residence in your heart? How did it all get there? So maybe you, maybe you like to just jot some notes about that and Just keep track of it. I think it would be a very interesting study for some of us. What is really there and how do they get there? 
And then, maybe even more so than just that, but I would encourage you this week, if you say, you know what, I don't like the contents of my heart, I don't like what I'm allowing in there, then replace the old habits with some new disciplines this week. I would, I would encourage you, try it for seven days. Spend time each day, morning, evening, afternoon, whenever your time allows. Spend some time reading the Scripture. You say, I don't know where to start. Since we're talking about wisdom, start this week in the book of Proverbs. Today is the 18th. Proverbs has 31 days. Read chapter 18 today, chapter 19 tomorrow, and so on. Read the Scripture this week, and then spend some time in prayer, some new disciplines to replace the old habits. And maybe, just maybe, you'd say, you know what? You said that wise person in Psalm chapter 1 has the Scripture in their heart. Maybe, just maybe, you'd memorize some of those verses that you read. So you've got those things stuck in your hearts. The Bible says we are to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness, that we need to guard our hearts and, uh, and monitor what we allow to enter them. And that's how we fill our hearts with wisdom and change the course of our lives. The content of your heart determines the course of your life. Those are words to live by. Don't forget them. Let's pray together. Maybe this morning you'd cry out to the Lord, God, give me a new heart. Mine's cold and dead. Lord, by faith I believe Jesus died for me and was raised again to give me new life, and I, I give it all to you. My entire heart. Maybe your prayer needs to be, Lord, show me what's there. Show me what's in my heart. God, help me understand how it got there. God, grant me the discipline change it. It's true that the content of your heart determines the course of your life. Lord, we're thankful to be here this morning, to be faced with your truth from your word and how practical it really is. So Lord, give us new hearts. Help us to guard our hearts, to replace old habits with new disciplines, and to be always mindful that the content of our hearts determines the course of our lives. Replace the old Lord with the new that you want there and make us completely yours, we pray in Jesus' name.